0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage ban, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us Today, Last time we looked at Hosea, I mentioned this is probably not a book that we're turning to in our dark moments or in our times of doubt or in our times of struggle. In fact, many times we look at Hosea, it's a somewhat of a discouraging book. I mean, we have a prophet who's supposed to bring the word of God to the people and he brings a message that's not very encouraging, takes a wife that's... Basically, the the marriage is a sham. Uh, She does nothing to defend the honor of of the marriage or the integrity of it. And yet this prophet is supposed to play the role of God and take such a wife to himself. And then we we hear this message of condemnation when we start in uh, chapter 1. What we saw last time where we left off at verse 9. It leaves off with, not my people. That's not very encouraging. And yet, this is what the Lord says to the prophet. And then, I wanted to put this into context so we remember it ends with not my people and it ends with they are my people. And you look at this and say, well, what's the Lord doing? He's sort of on the one hand taking away the blessings of God or the blessings that he's promised and then he gives them right back. And so one wonders as Has the Lord gotten amnesia? Has he forgotten or has he forsaken his word? Does does he not remember what he said? Was there such a delay between giving this word of judgment to all of a sudden a word of encouragement? I mean, what is this prophet doing? And So the problem that, that we can have as readers, there are certainly many skeptics that take this chapter and say, here, this is where the word of God does not have integrity, does not have authority. It's, it's just a contradictory mess. The problem is we lose sight of the context, don't we? And so what is the context and why is that intention in the context of Scripture so important? Why is it it's so important for us to truly understand the Lord's intention for his people to understand this? So as we look at this, We'll simply divide our message according to these verses and the promise of these children. First, you are my children. Second, you will be unified. And third, you receive mercy. So as we look at this and we consider, first, you are my children. Remember last time the prophet spoke? He was to take an unfaithful wife. And he was to build a, a family and, and, and a legacy with this woman that is not going to defend the integrity of the marriage. And we said that that there comes a point that we've seen with the prophets that there's the word, there's the word, there's the word. And then it it just seems that that the word of God just all of a sudden no longer just cuts to the heart. And so there's a role play. We've seen this with um, Isaiah. We see it certainly with Ezekiel and his prophecy. And so here Hosea is to do the same thing. Is to take a wife, was going to be unfaithful, picturing Israel pursuing other gods and not the true God. And he is to play the role of God, the, the husband that's committed to the marriage, defending the marriage, trying to show the integrity of marriage, and all the wife is doing is undermining. And again, we, we said this isn't an issue that the men are righteous and the women are unrighteous. We have to understand the role play. That's not the intention of what Hosea is giving us. Gomer takes the role of Israel. Hosea shows a picture of God coming and betrothing himself to a people who do not always remember their first love. So as we consider this, we think, well, okay, so, so what do we do now? Because we have Hosea telling us that all of a sudden there's going to be this blessing. The number of children of Israel is going to be like the sand of the seashore, he says. And we think of of Amos, you know what prophet was before Hosea, how they have a bit of an overlap, and how Amos is the one who gives a warning that the city of a thousand would be a hundred. Hosea says the people are going to be cut off. So so we have to take these things seriously because a prophet who overlaps with Hosea has said something that seems contradictory to Hosea 1 verse 10. The city of a thousand is going to be a city of a hundred. We have Hosea saying you are going to be cut off. But we have to think, okay, so why is the Lord using this language? This is the first thing we got to do. Why is the Lord using this language? What is this language teaching us? We think back to the Abrahamic promise. That's the most obvious place where, where we can go. But if we actually look at the wording in the original text, it's rather significant and it goes back to the legacy story or the origin story of Israel in Genesis 32. If Genesis 32.12, Jacob, and again, if you have time this week and if you're looking for something else to read, skim through the story of Jacob to refresh yourself. I think it's very important to know the story of Jacob, his legacy, as a backdrop to Hosea. And Jacob, in chapter 32, if you remember, he's going to meet with his brother who has threatened and vowed to kill him. And what does Jacob say? Lord, you promised. So he's, he's taking the Lord's promise and sticking it in the Lord's face. You promised to bless me. You promised to make me a multitude of, of people. You promised to make me have the descendants like the sand of the seashore. Same language here. And yes, certainly, uh, Jacob's echoing the language of Abraham, but it goes back to this origin story. And as Jacob does that, well, what does he do prior to the prayer? It's important to understand the context of that prayer. Because he takes his favored family, right? His favored wife, his favored sons, and he puts them towards the back. The last favored that he doesn't care so much about, they encounter Esau first. And why would he do that? Well, if Esau wants to kill them, you see the people up front, your slaves and those you don't care about, getting slaughtered and you know to get away with your favored family. It's a rather tactical plan that he has in his mind. And so this prayer comes after arranging his family according to this. Now where the significance of this origin story comes to play, I think so often we downplay the significance of this that you have Jacob being disciplined by the Lord, isn't he? But it's not disciplined in the sense that the Lord beats him over the head. Remember we said in Hebrews that when the Lord disciplines us, it can be a tap on the shoulder, it can be his providence, it can be instruction, it can be through the preaching of the gospel. There's a variety of ways that God disciplines us and corrects us and brings us in line with his purpose. Well, with Jacob, he wrestles with a stranger throughout the night. Doesn't know who the stranger is. But the lesson comes in the morning. Because Jacob doubts whether or not God can be a shield and defender. Isn't that the substance of his prayer? You promised to make me great. My brother's going to exterminate me. Where's your promise now, O Lord? I mean, really, when when you read the prayer, that's the essence of it. It's it's a crisis. And the Lord doesn't swat Jacob, does he? He touches him. And that's when Jacob recognizes this isn't some river demon or some river god as other commentators speculate. This is God, the Most High Lord, who has wrestled with him all night. And the mere touch of the hip and dislocation of the hip is where Jacob loses his strength. And he realizes right there who God is. This is a God who shows his strength in the midst and context of weakness, a God who shows his strength in the context of death, a God who shows his strength in the context of despair. When you understand that origin story that this, I would argue, is making us think back to Jacob's prayer, we can chuckle, we can say, oh, there's Jacob trying to scheme with God, there's Jacob trying to get his way, until we really realize who we are. Isn't this the very thing we do? With our Lord. And so Hosea is calling us to a very sober realization of who we are. We are not a people who deserve the Lord's mercy. We are not a people who are worthy of God's love. We are not a people who are worthy of His affection. That's what we understand. What we learned last time, Hosea is teaching us is that we are prone to trust in our own idols. Just like Jacob in that origin story, dividing his family, having the human tactics to make sure he preserves for himself what he cherishes and loves by his own definition. He's not one who's thinking about what is the kingdom of God? What is it to to walk in the power of a great heavenly redeemer who is one who can slaughter nations and raise up a small people and make them magnificent from a barren couple? Because isn't that ultimately what this is going back to? The story of Abraham and Sarah, a barren couple with death, unable to produce heirs. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 4, as good as dead, using that language. So we have to have this as a backdrop to this story. When we understand this backdrop, we understand how we move from verse 9 to verse 10. Because when the Lord leaves off with, you are not my people, what is the Lord saying? You are a people who has forgotten your purpose. You have forgotten who you are. You have lost sight of the God of heaven. And I'm going to teach this to you once again. I will teach you that strength comes through weakness. That I will bring about new life. This is why you have this movement, a significant movement. From Lo Ami, not my people to where you have now a new name, a name of children of the living God. Beni achai is the way it is in Hebrew. A wonderful promise. Because sons of the living God tells us something very profound. And it sets the context of this new life. Because they move from a people who are cast off, going into exile, facing death, facing nothingness, to a people who are now promised to have true everlasting life of being identified with a living God. If you're familiar with the prophets, I'm not going to go through all the references, but you think of Isaiah, you think of Psalms, contrasting the idols, the dead gods, the gods that that we have to protect in order to give them life, contrasted to the God of heaven who gives life, preserves his people, brings life from death, the God who overturns the curse sanction that we all deserve. So when Hosea speaks of this transfer, he's saying, yes, the Lord's going to send you out of the land. Yes, you are facing exile. But like the story of your origin, you need to learn where your strength in life comes from. It is not from you, but from the Most High God. That's the essence of what he has promised to do. You will be called children of the living God. Like Israel, the one who wrestles and prevails. How God wants a people who wrestle with him. Not in the sense of feistiness. Not in the sense of trying to make him have a miserable time with us. But wrestling the sense of what James says. What does it mean to give myself over to that imperishable word that dwells within us? And so the assurance is we will be a people. But Hosea goes on. And as he says, you are not my people, you will be children of the Most High. He goes on to give the assurance that the children of Israel and Judah will be unified under one head. This calls our attention to tragedy, doesn't it? And it's a tragedy that started actually we have with Isaac, isn't it? Isaac's the one who hears a revelation from God that Esau's not the covenant child. Esau's not the one that the covenant line will continue. But yet he tries to twist the hand of God by showing favoritism to Esau over Jacob. We think of Jacob's family and the continuation of this and where you have Jacob having Joseph, may he add another, through his favored wife. And also Yamin, son of my right hand, or my favored son. I mean, talk about right there setting a contrast in your family. I want more from this wife, and this is my favorite son. Uh, the other ones, uh, who, you know, so much with them, I, I don't really care, is what he's basically saying. And we see that in the life of Jacob, don't we? That there's that division that's going on. But this division goes on, and it actually gets worse. Because when David sins tragically against the Lord by committing adultery and murder, Being like the kings of this age, as Samuel warned when they set Saul as their king. We have David, who is told that the Lord will divide his kingdom. The sword will never depart from his house, and there will always be turmoil as a result. 2 Kings 12, verse 10. We see truly the brokenness and the purpose of God, and how it seems it is all thwarted. That the great king who is supposed to represent the Messiah is the one who did not unify the people of God, but divided them. One who acted like the pagan kings. And we have a history that goes on with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, where you have the division of the northern and the southern kingdom. That is not done merely for honorable reasons or convenience or a truce, it's done in a pure greed. It's done out of a, a motivation of just selfish, selfish pride, of wanting to get one over the other and being more powerful than another. And so instead of the people of God progressing in the great Canaan experience and, and the great identity of picturing heaven, we find that it digresses. And so now when Hosea gives us this prophecy that we heard last time, people have gone, they're going to be cast off, It seems that all is lost. That Moses' pleading in the wilderness has fallen short. Where Moses said, hey, you know, don't kill these people. What are the Egyptians going to say in the nations? Here's a God who can bring a people out of a land, but a God who cannot redeem his people. And so it seemed that God's purpose had failed until we get to this promise. The promise that the children of Israel, the children of Judah, will be brought together. That they will be called one people. And it will be called when people in a name that's repeated. Remember this name, Jezreel. Recounted to history, a lot of things have happened in this valley. But Remember Jezreel, we said, is scattered. Scattered can be a good thing, it could be a bad thing. The context of the previous prophecy, it was a bad thing. Because it meant that the Lord was going to take his people, who pursue other gods who are not faithful to him, He's going to scatter them throughout the nations. They're going to lose what they had. The land's not going to be theirs. They're going to experience turmoil and unrest. But now he takes this name, Jezreel, and he calls it to our attention again. Because this is a place where we see Ahab and Jezebel meeting their fate, and good things have happened here as well in terms of war. There's been slaughters. It's kind of a mixed place geographically. Remember we said the flip side of scattering is like scattering the seed of planting, creating new life, life coming from death, this sort of theme. So we see with an exile, when you look at the prophets, what's an exile? An exile is is where the land vomits out the people of God, Leviticus 18, as they were warned. So they're vomited out, it's death. They're, They're no longer welcomed in the sight and presence of God. But the promise of bringing them together is the Lord moving from death to life, bringing about that redemptive purpose of humbling his people and exalting them by his grace and mercy. And so you have to understand this backdrop of a people who are exiled from the land, handed over to death, if you will, in terms of its picture, and then being brought together once again in having life. Now, this language that's used here is a language that sort of puzzles us. It says the day of Jezreel. Because like I mentioned, there's, there's a lot of battles that have happened in this valley. And, and, and we wonder, well, what does the Lord mean? There's good, bad things that happen here in terms of the reformation of Israel, in terms of the digression of Israel. Both things are seen in this valley. But the day of Jezreel echoes something else in Israel's history and legacy. The language here echoes the language of the day of Midian. We think of the story of Gideon and his prophet, and how Midian is a place where Gideon shows his strength and throws off the Midianites, and it's Isaiah 9 verse 4 calling this event to our attention. And so it seems that Hosea is taking this same sort of theological concept and calling this to our attention to show the overturning of the exile. And so, why, why is that day so important? Well, if you think of Gideon, he's a rather comical judge, isn't he? he he's the one reason, oh, I'm sick of the Midianites. He prays about it. Lord says, okay, you, you want them gone? You're the man. I chose you to be the man. And he continues to ask for all these signs, like, well, how do I know I'm really the man? I don't know if I want to be the man. And finally, he recognizes that truly this is a revelation from God. And as the Lord whittles down his army, and he goes down to say about 200 men against a great superpower, Gideon is the one who is victorious by the grace of God. And so that day of Midian is where Israel once again enjoys the bounty and beauty and and blessing of the land. And so the point here is that as you see the people of God coming together, this is a picture of the day of the Lord. It's a day of two peoples coming together. We we think of Jews, Gentiles coming together under the one head, Jesus Christ, enjoying the ultimate day of the Lord, using these, these motifs and these themes from Scripture, assuring us that the Lord's purpose is not finished. Death truly is going to be overcome. Life will prevail. And we will be unified in the one Redeemer, the one Head, Jesus Christ. And so we say, wow, what a wonderful prophecy that's going on here in terms of this picture and this life and this assurance. And this is where we need to go on in 2 verse 1. Because this is very significant. Because it's not merely that you are not my people where it ends, but we have this play on the children uh, of what you have with, with Hosea, that you have a, the children that are you know, no mercy, you have lo rakamah, no mercy, uh, lo Ami not my people, then now we are called, you are my people. You have mercy. Now when we hear this, uh, the temptation may say, oh, well, it's a brother and sister, and so it means that, that, that the brothers are those who are the people and the sisters are those who receive mercy. Uh, that's, that's not the intention here. The intention is to show the unification in terms of this inheritance rights. How the people of God come together. How the children are are those who are are overturned. Because notice, it's a son who is called no mercy or or not my people. And so as this individual is called not my people... Uh, you have this understanding of how the Lord is overturning the previous curse of the children, giving new children to this man. And the Lord is going to bring them together. Now the assurance is, as he has said in the context, it's not going to be by military might. It's not going to be by significance of what Israel has done or what Judah has done. It is going to be by the Lord moved by his mercy. It is the Lord who is taking the joy of bringing his people into his presence. And so we say, well, then then what do we really make of this, and and why is this so significant? Well, this picture of being removed from the land, as we said, we we can't minimize the, the real substance and significance of this. When Israel is exiled from the land, vomited out, that communicates death. And as it communicates death, It's communicating the reality of estrangement from God. And so exile for Israel is not just a preferential thing. It's not just, "Eh, it's kind of sad they no longer have the land. It's saying that they are no longer in the presence of God. That's a pretty dramatic statement. I mean, if you really let that sink in, it's saying you are no longer able to approach the living God. That's the picture there. And that's what the Lord is showing here and prophesying and declaring. And so now when you come to this prophecy that the Lord is sort of saying with the prophet, okay, we're going to say some hard things that are going to flow from this chapter, or from this time. But I want you to understand that the promise I made has not fallen flat. The intention that the Lord has in his redemption has not failed. The ultimate goal of God's people dwelling with Him and <coughs> excuse me, and being in His presence forever, is because the Lord is going to bring about new life, recreation, redemption in such a way that we will dwell in the Lord's presence. So when we go through Hebrews, we go back to Hosea and we think about what Hebrews has taught us. Hebrews made very clear we're a wilderness people, right? Hebrews three to four. The warning, don't test the Lord, Um, you're in the wilderness, remember how Israel fell away. So we're seeing ourselves sort of in the context of Hosea, aren't we? Israel's facing exile, we are in exile. Peter, James refers to us as an exile people. So we are in exile, we're we're away from the heavenly land. The temptation we can think is, well, we're never going to be restored in the presence of God. But this is where you have to put the prophet in the context of the story of Scripture. The story of Christ, the, the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, the life we have in Christ. That as Christ enters history, what, what is his purpose? Will it be the incarnate word, the action of God, the one who goes to face death and is the one who descends into the, the depths of Sheol or the depths of hell, which is a presentation of going down into the sea, Exodus, these sorts of motifs. You know, it, it pictures that. Christ really does it. Christ emerges triumphant as the one who gives and, and, and establishes resurrection. He overcomes a curse, overcomes death. Strength only comes in Christ Jesus. That's it. End of the story. And so as Christ breathes out his spirit and gives us life, we can't minimize the significance of Paul speaking of us as a resurrection people. So the very picture the very thing that Hosea is, is presenting here that sort of boggles our mind, what do we do with this? It's a reminder that the day of the Lord, the ultimate outcome, the ultimate dwelling in the presence of God is assured, because Christ has overcome. And so how do we understand then the Lord's intention? As we mentioned, it sort of seems contradictory. Well, as we answer that question where we started. We need to speak of the Lord of what is right. And that's something we we have to take seriously in the Word of God. And so when we speak of what's right of God, we don't want to rush to a hasty conclusion and say, well, I don't understand how this fits together. Therefore, there's a problem with the Word of God, or therefore there's a problem with God. No, we, we have to come back to it in humility and say it's a problem with my understanding. I'm not understanding this correctly. We talked about Christ and Matthew being a great rabbi, right? He doesn't just give the answer. He wants us to wrestle with the answer. God wants a wrestling people. He wants us to wrestle. What does it mean to live out the gospel for Christ? What does it mean to live in the power of Christ? What does it mean that Christ has really redeemed and secured me once for all? What are the implications of that? That's what Hosea is driving home. Israel is standing in a land, self-assured, self-righteous, self-vindicated, thinking they're on top of the world and they got it all dialed. What does the Lord do? Jacob, in the origin story, Lord, you said you'd do this, now I want you to do this after I've basically schemed my way and I'm trying to manipulate you. And the Lord does what? Touches his hip, reminds him, That strength comes through weakness. When we look at the story of Hosea and the story of Israel, the Lord's reminding us we are a people who are prone to be unfaithful to our groom. That's who we are. We struggle with this, but we learn something else, don't we? That the Lord is the one who continually comes and pursues. Now again, Hosea is warning us, don't push the boundaries of God's grace. It's not permission for that. But it's understanding that God knows who he's redeemed. A struggling people. A people who need new life. And as God has done this, he sends a redeemer in such a way that, that goes beyond our expectation. In fact, he's so likely, that's why he ends up at the cross. This isn't the Messiah we expected. We had our picture of a Messiah. This Messiah doesn't measure up. Therefore, once again, God's wrong, right? That's what they say. Who's wrong? The Pharisees and the kangaroo court. The reminder is that we are a people who are prone to be self-reliant. A people who are prone to manufacture our own gods that, that satisfy us. We are a people who are prone to scheme, as we see in covenant history. What is the Lord teaching us? His strength, his will, his power is not only sufficient, but necessary. The Lord has guaranteed that he will take a people from death and give them new life. And this lastly is why I thought it was so important we read from James. Because James talks about the implanted word. That is present within us. That's what Hosea is exhorting us to give into, to. To continually give ourselves over to the implanted word in terms of who we are. But never to lose sight of our Redeemer. We have not redeemed ourselves. We have been redeemed in Christ. And it is because of his life we have life. It is because he has conquered death we are assured we have conquered death in him. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you read and find encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage urcbelgrade.com that is u r c b e l g r a d e.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.